Hey, it's Martine. So before we start today's show, uh, we have a big announcement that we need to share. I am here with Alahe Azadi. And Alahe, why don't you tell people what the news is? I am now officially a co-host of Post Reports. I am so excited. <laughs> we are so excited, too. Um, so Alahe is going to be co-hosting Post Reports. Um, you will be hearing her voice uh, just like you have been for the last few months. Um, but she's officially on our team and officially one of the voices on our show. And that is really great news for listeners because people who have heard Alahe know that she has such warmth. She's so funny. She's so curious. She's so smart about the way that she approaches questions and interviews and stories. Um, and it's also a big deal for us because that means that we can do more stories, be more ambitious, um, and tell the kind of journalism that we aspire to tell. I mean, Martine, what you and everyone else on the show have done for the past several years has been so incredible, so I just feel honored that I get to be a part of it now in an official capacity and contribute to, like you said, expanding the type of storytelling that we do so that we can bring listeners more reported features, deeper stories they can't hear elsewhere, and also be able to respond really quickly to the news and accompany people through the biggest moments of the day, of the week. I'm just very excited to be here to do it. And I'm also still going to be writing media stories, so uh, look for me there, too. <laughs> so, Alahe, you have been guest hosting the show for a few months now. Um, and over the course of that time, I have gotten to know you a lot better. Um, but I would love for listeners to hear a little bit more about who you are and what kind of brought you to this moment, um, what your professional experience is, what you've been covering, and, and why this is something you wanted to do. I've been a journalist for many years now. I've written and covered many things during my time as, as a reporter. I've covered Congress and national politics. I've also covered local news, breaking news, uh, pop culture, comedy, uh, race, demographics. Um, I just have such an innate curiosity about almost everything in the world. So, so I'm really excited to be able to bring that curiosity here. And and I also, you know, outside of work, I have a background in performing and comedy. And so stand I've up. always— She does stand, stand up, up, people. I'm so excited. <laughs> you haven't been doing stand-up for a while because of the pandemic, but, like, right. I'm so excited to go see you live. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise not to turn this host chair into the stand-in for for a comedy show. I mean, um, I don't know. I feel like that <laughs> that is a thing we could do. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm and I'm honored to to be joining you and the and the whole crew here who have done such incredible work for several years on the show and to be part of that future. And Alahe, do you know that we are coming up on our 1,000th episode of Post Reports? Speaking of things that are very humbling. Uh, so here is to the next 1,000 with Alahe uh, on the team. We're very here, excited. here. <laughs> Here's today's show. Here we go. The game has changed. The whole complexion of the NFL has changed. People watching it now has changed. There are more people watching it now than ever before. And there's more diversity in watching it ever before. And you know what? The people that are watching now are saying the same thing that you're saying. Why is this? Why is that? It starts with the ownership. It starts up front. Football is the most watched sport in the U.S. And the NFL is one of the most influential organizations in the country. But despite the fact that the majority of NFL players are Black, very few Black men make it to be head coach. 
Since 1989, there have been almost 200 head coaches in the league, and only 25 of them have been black. Got to the Pittsburgh Steelers as a rookie. We're winning Super Bowls. No African-American coaches on, on the staff. I never had a black coach coach me at any level. I'm talking high school, college, and pro football. Any minority coach understands that they carry the weight of not just the job itself, but you also carry the weight of your brothers who have aspirations of becoming head coaches. Sixteen black head coaches recently spoke with The Washington Post about their experiences in the league. I don't think the NFL is exempt from the rest of the world. You know, you look at the Fortune 500 companies, how many minority CEOs do they have? You know, you look at other industries, and, and, and I guarantee you it's, it's similar. This is not an NFL issue. You know, this is society. Reporters at The Post set out to document how black coaches have been consistently sidelined by the NFL. We wanted to make sure that these coaches were seen and that they were seen as people who have ambitions and aspirations and hopes and dreams. This is Michael Lee, sports enterprise reporter for The Post. And that there's a league and there's a system here that is denying them these opportunities. For the past few months, Michael has been working with columnist Jerry Brewer and an investigative team at The Post. They have tried to figure out what's been at the root of this problem. And for Jerry, one thing was clear. Often, in matters such as this, people are looking for overt racist instead of looking at the racism and the roots of it and the cause of it and how when you're mindless about solving it, nothing gets fixed. The problem with the NFL is its soil. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 26th. Today, we talk about why Black coaches continue to be denied opportunities, despite years of attention on this issue, and why the problem is actually getting worse, and what does work to make a difference. In 2002, for a temporary period, Herman Edwards was the only Black head coach in the NFL. And it was such a civil rights travesty at the time that two attorneys uh, went to the league threatening to sue. And out of their threat came something called the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule, named after the family who owned the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is a league-wide policy that was adopted in 2003. It's changed a couple times over the years, but the gist is that teams have to interview at least one or two minority candidates for some leadership positions, including head coach. Within the first decade of the Rooney Rule, you did see a spike in representation throughout the NFL. And then once again, it goes down into a wave and it goes to this moment once again in 2022 in which you are down to one black head coach, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers, temporary. Right now, there's currently three because two were hired late in the hiring wave. But what happened when we were down to one coach this time? A coach followed through on a lawsuit. Brian Flores, the former Miami Dolphins coach, along with two other coaches, a former head coach Steve Wilkes and a former assistant coach Ray Horton, filed a class action suit against the NFL alleging racial discrimination. And I know there's, there's a sacrifice, there's risk to that, but um, at the end of the day, um, we need change. We need change. Um, I, I know many very capable um, black 
coaches, um, some of my staff who I know um, if given an opportunity or when given an opportunity are going to go and do a great job on their interview. Um, and I would just hate for that uh, to, be a, to be a waste. Uh, and they are currently in the process of litigating that suit as this NFL season begins, the 103rd season in NFL history. And over 103 years, you have 26 black coaches and less than 45 people of color who ever coached in the NFL. And so the entire season is being played under the cloud of scrutiny of this problem. I want to talk more about the Rooney Rule, because from what you're saying, it sounds like at least for a brief period, it was successful in getting more Black coaches into these top jobs and that it, it worked in some ways. So can you talk a little bit more about what was good about the Rooney Rule and why it was actually a big thing to have this promise that for every one of these kind of premier positions, you would have at least one candidate from, you know, who was not a white dude? I'm not sure if the policy itself was effective as much as this public scrutiny of it. And when you have this moment when people are saying that the NFL has this systemic racism that they cannot solve, I think in the immediate aftermath of that, there is an attention to the issue. And they go about being more intentional in trying to solve it. And I think ultimately it was the marriage of public pressure and a policy that said, you know what, uh, we have to at least have conversations with these coaches. And I think out of these conversations, you start to develop a bit more of a network. But, uh, I mean, the problem becomes when, whenever you have policy that makes people, especially billionaires, do something in an obligatory manner, they are going to turn it into a perfunctory mess. And that's ultimately what happened. Yeah, it's funny. As someone who doesn't know a ton about football, I do know about the Rooney Rule because it feels like it applies in all kinds of different professional scenarios of what it feels to be a candidate for a job and thinking like, oh, I'm clearly only here so that they can say that they, you know, interviewed a diverse set of candidates or what have you. And I can imagine that that's probably what some of these coaches felt in these situations, too. So what did you hear from people who were on the receiving end of that of feeling like, actually, this rule isn't helping me and that no matter how I perform in these job interviews or how competitive of a candidate I am, that they're not actually being chosen? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of frustration because, you know, guys are going in for interviews and they sort of go in thinking it's a token interview, thinking that they're just filling off a quota just for them to scratch off a box and then move on. And I know that the Rooney Rule has been modified and changed over the years to where now you have to interview two minority candidates. I think the Rooney Rule was was it was put in place with good intentions, but I didn't necessarily like the spirit of some of the teams and how they were using the Rooney Rule. And so I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't a token interview. Anthony Lynn was a former Los Angeles Chargers coach, and now he's assistant head coach of the 49ers. When he saw all this unfolding, he made it a, his own personal policy that he would not interview with a team unless they had previously spoken to another minority candidate. And it pissed a couple of teams off. You know, they called and I say, you know, you have to interview a, a minority before I come interview for you. And they moved on. That's okay. 
from our conversations with a lot of these coaches, they saw the good in it initially of the Rooney Rule in that it put them in the room, exposed them to a lot of owners who they just otherwise would not have come in contact with. But they've seen it now manipulated in a way where they still aren't being seen as valuable commodities and as somebody who can actually produce wins for their franchises. You really have to focus on the things that you can control. I can control how people perceive me, but you know I, I can't focus on, on winning. And, and I think at the end of the day, you know, when you're a minority coach, you got to win. And and you know you, you understand coming in, your leash might be shorter than others, but. You know, at the end of the day, you're in that seat and you have an opportunity to do something that others don't and you need to make the most of it. I think there's a lot of frustration there, but there's also a culture of silence that comes with that because the last thing you want to do when you're going for a job interview is to come like you're making an excuse as to why you didn't get it. And then say, oh, I didn't get the job because I was black. You know, you don't want to come off as being self-serving or feeling like, you know, you're not holding yourself accountable for not getting the job. So you can't really come out and publicly say, I didn't get that job because I was black, because then it looks like you're putting down another guy who got the job. And so they kind of have to just keep it to themselves for the most part, their level of frustration and just try to grind out at their current job because of the perception that comes with that. If you are outspoken about saying, I know I deserve that opportunity, I didn't get it because of the way I look. It just puts you in a bad position. You may never get an opportunity to interview with another team if you do speak up. And what has the NFL's response been to accusations that the Rooney rule is essentially being abused and that it's not really doing what it's supposed to do? And more largely that the NFL and then NFL owners haven't been really committed to this stated goal of actually increasing the diversity among head coaches. The NFL's general reaction from a league office standpoint is we're trying, we're working at it. They continue to revise policies and people debate the merits of a lot of them, but they're doing a lot of different things. (laughs) They continue to try to diversify their staffs in the league office, try to encourage diversity of leadership, particularly at the executive level in individual franchises so that you might have different points of view. Uh, Ultimately, the league office will tell you their hands are tied. They're not the ones who are going to make the final decision. That's up to each individual franchise. And it becomes a classic example of there is no policy that covers intent, that mandates intent. There is no way through a policy that you can affect the heart and mind of someone making a decision. And so they become somewhat limited in that way. Uh, The NFL is an interesting, all professional sports leagues are this way. You have this league that functions as one, but really what they are are 32 different businesses. They all have their own different business models, business practices, revenue generation, so on and so forth. And so trying to systematize and centralize things in that league is incredibly complicated. And that is where all of this unconscious bias sits in the fact that there is no uniformity in the league except for when they play on Sundays. And do you think that the team owners 
actually believe that this is a real problem? Like, the fact that there have only been 26 Black head coaches in the league's history is a sign of something that is truly wrong? They'll say it. They'll say this is a problem. Yeah, this is a problem. But they'll also say, I'm not the problem. And so if you speak to these owners, they'll be like, oh, I'm not. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I believe in you know, providing opportunities for all. But then when you look at their track record and see that that isn't the case, then they'll just deflect a little more or they they just won't say anything. But for the most part, whenever owners come out and speak about this topic, they'll say that, yeah, this is a flaw, but nobody's going to step forward, step up front and like really do something about it or even demand that their colleagues fix it. After the break, we hear from some of the coaches who have made it and what they say about how the system should change. He said, I'm going to teach you how to be a head coach. And I said, TD, whatever you want. I said, I trust you. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to teach you how to do this. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. So talk to me about one of the few Black head coaches who actually have been hired to these jobs and what kind of impact that they have had on hiring practice and how they've been able to change a little bit of the dynamic here from the fact that they were able to get into this job. Well, um, Tony Dungy, so he won a Super Bowl as a leader of the Colts, um, the first Black coach to win a Super Bowl. Coaching was never really my dream or idea. I kind of grew up my parents were teachers. Uh, I grew up thinking that might be a way to go. I went to the University of Minnesota. I was a business administration major, thinking that I might go that route. So I guess my game plan was to play in the NFL about 10 years, win a championship, make some money, and start my own business. Well, that kind of fell apart as I only got to play three years in the NFL. Now I was 25 years old and really looking for a job. And when he was hired by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1996, he didn't just go there on his own. He went there with a clear agenda to hire talent, but especially making sure he provided opportunities for black coaches in general. And it it wasn't as if, okay, if I don't win, no other black coaches are going to get a chance. But I knew if I had success, that, that would open the door for people. And one of the guys who we hired was Herman Edwards. And he made him the assistant head coach and said, I am going to groom you to be a head coach. One of the first things that he did was make sure that Herman Edwards would not leave for another coordinator position. He would not leave to become a defense coordinator anywhere else. And so Herman Edwards, the first job he got next was as head coach of the New York Jets. He said, I'm going to teach you how to be a head coach. I said, TD, whatever you want. I said, I trust you. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And so when he made decisions and all those things, I was involved in that, showing me how he went about making decisions. Sometimes I didn't agree with him, 
but it was just the process of what to do and, and just, you know, being a head coach, all the things you got to do to be a head coach. And so I learned that and stayed under him. And, and there were times I had opportunities to leave to become a coordinator. And I chose not to. And, and Tony would tell me, he said, you don't need to do that. Just, just trust me, you're going to be a head coach. And within five years, uh, I was selected uh, as a New York Jets head coach. There have been a lot of coaches who've worked for him. Lovey Smith, Mike Tomlin, who's gone on to win a Super Bowl, uh, Leslie Frazier. So a number of these coaches who work for Tony Dungy have gone on to have their own success. But Dungy has been deliberate about it. You know, you don't become a head coach by mistake. Someone has to see it in you. Someone has to believe that you have the potential to do this. And, you know, every coach that we spoke to, there was always somebody that came along their, their pathway who they encountered who said, you know what? You have potential to be a true leader in this league. I wanted to give some young black coaches an opportunity to get in the NFL because the hardest thing at that time was getting that first step, getting in your foot in the door. And so uh, when I became the guy who could hire, I was, I was looking for that. And in your conversation with Dungy, how did he react to the fact that we are now on this downswing again, that um, even though that there was this optimistic, hopeful period of seeing more Black coaches come in, that we're at this point where it's pretty much just as bad as ever almost? There's a sadness there, you know, to see 20 years for the NFL to go full circle, to go from one to one, that is, that's hurtful. And it's something that I think he feels a responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so um, I just feel like, he knows that with his standing as a Super Bowl winning coach and on the Hall of Fame, that he has to speak on their behalf and he has to sort of beat the drum loudly so that owners can hear it. You know, he does things behind the scenes. He makes phone calls. He talks to people within the league office. He does everything he can in, on that regard. But that's not always enough. You know, you need somebody who can also um, speak out and, and make it clear that, hey, you're, you're not doing what's right and we got to provide more opportunities. Because if you say you're about diversity and inclusion as a league, and we look on the field and we don't see it, then somebody's not telling the truth. So then what's the solution here? Like, what would it take to make more owners right now take this problem more seriously and really, like, make make the decisions that need to be made in order for there to be a substantive change here? When it comes to race relations in America, I don't think any progress is ever made without some kind of leverage. So there has to be some kind of transactional leverage in the deal that forces owners to change the way that they think. If you think about quarterbacks, and we see Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson and all of these great black quarterbacks of this era, it wasn't that the NFL just decided, hey, it's time for us to be fair to black people who play quarterback. What happened is that the game became so fast, and there were so many great sack artists getting to quarterbacks, injuring quarterbacks, affecting the way that that position was played, that they said, you know what? We need a swifter, more athletic quarterback who can move and make plays outside of the pocket. And that changed the entire world for the black quarterback. And so the transaction there being your skill set is something that is going to advance this game. The question with black coaches now becomes, what in the world can you bring to the table that convinces them that the game is going to be better if you make it more diverse in terms of leadership? And what would that be? 
Well, I, I think this is where it doesn't become as joyful and wonderful. I and mean, there's a couple things. If players start demanding that they want to be coached by a different leader, leadership style, then all of a sudden things could change really quickly. But it's hard to get an NFL locker room of 53 players per team to protest for something that broad and make those kind of demands. Especially when their careers are so short and they can be cut the next week if they say anything or take a knee. <laughs> you know, so I think that putting the pressure on them to speak out is very tough because all players want is a coach who can put them in a position to win, put them in a position to get paid. So whoever does that, that's what they're going to get behind. And what do you think is at stake here? I mean, for this sport that is, for better or worse, so kind of intrinsic to American identity. I mean, why does it matter? Why is it important that there is a solution to this problem, that the what a head coach in the NFL looks like does eventually start to change? The influence of the NFL is just tremendous. And so if you could solve your institutional bias, or at least decrease it a significant amount, the message that that would send to the entire country would be amazing. And then also the numbers. You've got the demographics on your side. You have a player workforce that, in terms of African-American representation, is just below 60%. And that, in essence, is your pool of candidates for future coaches. And so for the NFL, a lot of it becomes like, if you guys can't solve it, <laughs> you know, how in the world is like this business going to be able to solve it? And we saw with, with the impact, the Rooney Rule, even though the Rooney Rule frustrates a lot of different companies and government agencies who have adopted some version of it, the influence of the Rooney Rule is tremendous throughout American business. And so just imagine a day in which the NFL could be like the NBA, which now has 50% of the league is black coaches. Imagine if you saw a day in the NFL in which 16 or more of the head coaches were minorities, what that would say to the nation. Yeah, and I think the one thing that, just look, look at the field. You know, we talked about the progress that black quarterbacks have made. Look at the excitement of the game when you see a Patrick Mahomes scrambling around the field and throwing a 40-yard bomb or Kyler Murray tossing a slingshot, you know, leading a comeback. Look at how much fun the game is. Well, what if you have a diversity of leadership, a diversity of ideas to where you're not doing everything the same way so that the game doesn't look the same all over the place? Well, you can really expand how the game is played, how much fun it is, if you try something different, if you try something new, because right now everybody thinks everything's cool. But what if you switch it up a bit? What advancements can you make as a league if you think outside of what your comfort level is? And so I think that's really what a lot of these coaches are hoping the league can do is sort of say, hey, you know what? This is great, but we can be better. Michael and Jerry, thank you so much for this. This is fascinating. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. Michael Lee is a sports enterprise reporter. Arjun Singh produced this story. If you want to hear more from the head coaches who talked to The Post about their experiences with the NFL, we've got videos of these interviews online. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. In addition to the super exciting news I shared at the top of the show about Alahe Azadi becoming a co-host, you may also have noticed that Post Reports has a cool new logo. As one of our producers, Arjun Singh, said, New look, new co-host, same great vibes. This is a really big moment for our show in so many ways. And if you have been with us for a long time, thank you so much. If you know someone who doesn't listen yet, but who you think would love Post Reports, please send them a link to an episode you think they would enjoy. Word of mouth is the best way for people to find us. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.